Welcome to From the Heart with Daniel Groom, he, him, Don Lister, she, her, and special guest today, Nina Zolotov. She, her. Have I said your name correctly, Nina? You have, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. I think as our listeners will know, it may well be the first and only time I've got someone's name correct on the first guy. So I'm very, I'm impressed. Maybe I'm improving. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast. It is wonderful to have you. And we're really looking forward to an engaging conversation with you. Let's tell our readers a little bit about listeners, a little bit about you. You are from California, Berkeley in California. Sounds wonderful. Sounds sunny which um, I'm very jealous of, given that permanently here it seems to be raining. You are the author of several books, co-author of three books on yoga, Yoga for Healthy Aging, Moving Towards Balance, and Yoga, the Poetry of the Body. You are also editor-in-chief of and a contributing writer for the Yoga for Healthy Aging blog, which is now over 10 years old. It's incredible. You have a new book coming out, which is what we're going to be talking about today, although I imagine many other things also. Your new book is so apt for where Daniel and I are in our lives right now, and I'm sure many other people. Yoga for times of change, practices and meditations for moving through stress, anxiety, grief and life's transitions. The book is published on June 14th and it's available to pre-order from a wide range of books sellers including here in the UK Waterstones Book Depository and UK Amazon go to Waterstones guys to Waterstones to keep let's keep the independent bookstores alive you are also a teacher of and your specialisms are in yoga you teach for emotional well-being stress anxiety insomnia and healthy aging so gosh you do a lot so you have such a lot of experience and Aren't our listeners fortunate to have you here to share some of that wisdom today? So thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. So let's check in. Let's see how we are all doing. Daniel, how are things with you? I am doing okay. Thank you, Dawn. Um, thanks for asking. Um, Yes, Nina's book comes at a point where there's a lot of transition going on between personal things that are going on in my life, work things that are going on, things that are going on at the studio that Dawn and I um, own together. And yeah, it feels like there's a there's a there's a there's a lot happening. And amongst all of that happenings, I'm just trying to make sure that I pace what is happening mm. and give myself time to process mm. because I know from past experience I tend to when change is happening I tend to shut myself away and I'm really trying not to do that um, so I I'm trying to be more out there more open to embracing all of the emotions of change <laughs> And also making sure that I have enough time to rest because I know when I go through periods of change, I get very exhausted very quickly. So I'm upping my time um, where I get to do my yoga nidra or my restorative yoga or my meditation. Mm. 
Mm. Um, also as well, you know, I am training for a marathon. <laughs> so that rest <laughs> is massively needed to increase anyway. But um, yeah, so that's where I am today. Um, and thank you for asking, Dawn. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm okay in that, you know, in a very similar place to you, there's lots going on. There's lots of change happening in the world of yoga and the community of yoga and the industry. And frankly, I think a lot of it's important and good, but most change is uncomfortable. So there's a certain level of uncomfortableness and grief around things that are happening right now, but also a deep knowing that everything is okay. And, uh, yeah, and then my youngest daughter, no, my eldest daughter's 25 today. So, and, and in fact, it's about now as we were recording when she would have been born, because she was born up just after six, I think six something in the evening, after three days of hard labor. It was, it was hard labor. Yeah, the old days where they strapped you to a bed and uh, wouldn't let you do anything you're supposed to do when you're pregnant and giving birth. <laughs> I had genuine PTSD afterwards. Uh, so, but yeah, she's 25 and she's pregnant herself, you know? So oh, wow. I'm about to become, um, I'm already a step nonna to two beautiful grandchildren. Um, and this will be my first, one of my children having a baby. So lots of big life stuff and change happening. And uh, yeah, and, and I've, I'm just back from 10 days in Italy, which was really nice. But um, I had a little bit of a moment of crisis there. I got, I kept getting chatted up by really old men. So I went and dyed hair. <laughs> it was completely bonkers. I was like, literally, one day, three old men invited me for, one invited me for dinner, another night for drinks. And I'm talking like they were 75 or something. I mean, Italian men are a bit like that. But I just took myself into a hairdresser and had my lovely white hair dyed red. I mean, I do like it, but I just afterwards I thought, what on earth was that about? And so I asked make, you the question, didn't I, Dawn? Did they yeah. stop chatting you up? And you said no. no. <laughs> I don't think I'm old. <laughs> it was, it was, you know, all the Italian men do chat you up. But up until a few years ago, it would be the younger ones or the ones of my age. But now it's like the old guys think they're in with a chance. I'm like, I'm still up, <laughs> I can still move, you know. You, you're, no, go away. So just run, just run up the hill. They can't catch, catch up with you. <laughs> oh, God, so funny. So, yeah, lots of change, lots of stuff going on. But, you know, it's um, as we all know, I'm a great believer in surrender. Surrender Experiment, Michael Singer being one of one of my favourite books. And uh, I'm, I'm trying very hard to keep surrendering and trust, 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 trust that things are as they're meant to be. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking. Nina, how are you? What's going on in your world? Um, I'm pretty good. I'm very busy. So it, do, it does seem like, uh, you know, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like a huge transition into a completely different way of living for all of us where we're all disconnected. And now we're going through this really bumpy new transition because it's not like things just got switched off, but things have changed a lot. So I, I've had uh, both my adult children stay with me recently. And for the first time when I just saw them for, for two and a half years and they hadn't seen each other in three years and um, then 
I'm having more guests coming. So the, there's a lot of house guests and seeing people at the same time, things, you know, aren't normal and they feel confusing. And um, so that's a little difficult. Um, and, I, and, and so I've noticed too that for, for myself that um, that sort of background stress that we've had all along for the last two year, two plus years makes, makes it me stress out a little more easily than I normally would have. So, you know, I'm sort of keeping an eye on that and doing a lot of um, stress management practices as I always do. So, yeah, it's a kind of confusing time. And then, you know, the war and politics and global warming and all these other concerns that I have um, are making me feel a bit unsettled, even as I'm really enjoying being reunited with people I love and um, having more of a normal life um, than I did before. And, you know, and then I just also feel uncertain about, you know, what's normal and if it will ever be normal or how things will be two years from now, for example. I'm not trying to figure it out, but um, so it's, it does feel like even though uh, we're seeing more light at the end of the tunnel, things are still very uncertain for all of us. Mm -hmm. um, and actually when, when I came up with the idea for this book, I, it was before the pandemic. <laughs> Um, although how it played out was I ended up writing it during the pandemic. And in, even then we all were under the illusion that it wouldn't last that long, remember? And so I remember thinking, well, by the time this comes out, you know, it'll be over. And, you know, now it, things are as uncertain in a way and confusing as ever, I think, um, just different than they were two years ago. It's really true, isn't it? I think um, there's so everything you just said is there are so much uncertainty. It feels like there's nowhere to put your feet down and say, well, that feels solid. Like the, the planet is a mess and there's a war which is impacting not just on these poor people there, but on the whole, you know, the whole world, particularly around Europe. And, you know, people are still very anxious about the pandemic and the vaccine and everything. So they just we've got to find practices and ways of stabilizing ourselves and centering ourselves. So your book feels very timely, actually. Well, my hope is that it will help people. I, I really think that um, even if somebody was able to find one thing in there to practice that would help them, that would, that would be worth it for me. Thank you. I wonder if you were going to very kindly read us the brief, is it the preface or the introduction to the book that sort of sets? It's the preface, <laughs> which is how we say it here in America. <laughs> ah. All right. It begins with a quote. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. That's a quote from Prince Rogers Nelson from the song, Let's Go Crazy. After weeks of oppressive gray clouds and unending drizzle, Cambridge, England was beautiful that summer day. 
The sky was a glorious blue, Midsummer Common was a glorious green, and the tidy flower beds were in full bloom. My one-year-old daughter was bouncing up and down in her British pushchair, smiling and laughing as she pointed a chubby finger at the baby ducks and the family of swans that were swimming slowly down the river cam. I, on the other hand, had tears streaming down my face and didn't care who saw me crying in public. I'd had another sleepless night and no matter what I did, going for a run when my husband got home, hiring a sitter so I could go to a weekly yoga class, taking a break with a night out with my new Canadian friends, my insomnia was relentless and my weight was continuing to drop. Moving to England when I was five months pregnant had been hard for me. I left behind a full-time job as a technical writer and documentation manager and a circle of friends in Boston for life as a quote, resident alien housewife, unquote, in a picturesque but very provincial university town where I knew not a single person and where everyone I met, whether through the university or in the town, saw me only as a young mom. But recently my situation had become even more challenging because my husband, Brad, was looking for a permanent job and was talking about moving somewhere else new, again, and to places where I had no wish to live, instead of returning to California where we'd both grown up. I felt trapped because I didn't want to split up our family. I also didn't want to move somewhere else where I felt like I didn't belong. Then my father had a life-changing stroke and my parents who had been living for the last year in London moved back to Los Angeles to figure out what was next for them. That's when the insomnia started. When I finally went to see my family doctor, as my daughter sat at our feet playing with my wallet and keys, he said, I'm not surprised. His office was across the street from Cambridge University, so he'd seen the same situation many times. Wife of a postdoctoral fellow or graduate student, baby in a foreign country, blah, blah, blah. The bottom line that I was that I was having a nervous breakdown and he ultimately diagnosed me with agitated depression. Thanks to a combination of therapy and medication, I recovered from my breakdown and my marriage survived. But I was left with so many questions. Why had this happened to me? I wasn't against change and uncertainty. So why was I have, having such a hard time dealing with it now for the first time? Was there anything I could do to prevent all this from happening again? And who was I now when I turned out to be so much more vulnerable than I had ever imagined? That was the beginning of my personal journey to understand change, how to adapt to it, and how to accept it. I tried more therapy. I read books about emotional illness. I took up swimming, and I studied creative writing. It wasn't until years later that I learned that something I had been I had already been doing for exercise, yoga, held the answers I was looking for. I didn't find those answers though by just going to weekly yoga classes. It was only when I started studying yoga in depth, practicing yoga regularly at home, taking special workshops with a variety of teachers and reading both modern and ancient books on yoga that I learned how I could use yoga to help myself and then later on to help others as well. That's why I'm writing this book now, with the aim of making things as easy as possible for you to learn all in one place, all the wonderful things I did about how yoga can help during times of change. To deepen my understanding of both 
human nature and why yoga is so powerful for helping us to adapt to and accept change, I decided to branch out in my studies, delving into human physiology, brain science, psychology, and even human evolution. I didn't have a curriculum to follow, so I created my own. For a number of years, I read many books and articles and even consulted directly with various scientific experts. I was fascinated to see that many contemporary scientific discoveries support the original observations about human nature that the ancient yogis made. And this background was very helpful to me in understanding the why and the how of yoga along with the what. So I'm including some of that background here in this book along with all the information about yoga. Yes, I'll admit it, this book is jam-packed with both simple down-to-earth practices and lofty ideas. It's my hope that at least some of them will help you, as Prince said, get through this thing called life. Thank you, Nina, for reading that. It's wonderful. Um, I'm a huge Prince fan as well. So you picked a line from my favorite song ever. <laughs> so the first thing when I opened your book was that, and I was just like, it's perfect. <laughs> um, I take it you're a Prince fan as well. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. But um, when I was uh, writing the book, I mean, I always loved that opening to the song. But when I was writing the book during the pandemic, I guess someone was passing that around. And I just thought it was so perfect because, you know, life can be hard sometimes. <laughs> and during the time I was writing the book, um, we had what my, my husband was calling the trifecta <laughs> of challenges here in Northern California. It was um, a pandemic. We had an extreme fire season here, which I'm sure people saw on the news. The whole West was on fire and there was nowhere to go. And then we had a very uh, divisive political situation. So it was, it was an extremely hard time. Mm. So uh, anyway, that's why the quote seemed so perfect that, that I wanted to help others and uh, that we all needed to help each other through it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and what an amazing opening to a book as well. You know, you just go straight into, you know, the depths of how desperate you felt at that time, you know, and I think it's so refreshing to hear vulnerability so early on in a book. You know, it, you go straight to the point of actually saying, you know, this was a really tough time for me. And I... I as we've alluded, you know, in the in the opening to our podcast, you know, change is inevitable. It's happening all around us. All of these practices, whether they're yoga, whether they're Buddhist, whether they're other, you know, traditions that are looking at us as 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 human beings, are all about accepting change. But yet we still find it so challenging to accept it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm fascinated to know what your thoughts are on that. <laughs> oh, about why it's so hard. Yeah, why it's yeah, so I hard. do have a yeah. lot of thoughts about that. Actually, <laughs> it's really interesting. I mean, I I actually find it sort of reassuring to understand 
uh, sort of basics of human nature um, and why change is so hard for us. So, uh, you know, anyone who's familiar with uh, my blog will know that I'm really interested in the science behind um, everything that I can find, uh, whether it has to do with yoga practices or health or whatever, you know, I was one to like dig deeper. And in this case, when thinking about change, I was really influenced by the book, Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright. I heard him speaking on the radio and I was just fascinated. So, and even though he was speaking about Buddhism, I know now enough about yoga to, to understand that pretty much everything in Buddhism can map to something in yoga. So, um, so I just, you know, was translating in my head while he was talking, but um, he looks at human evolution to understand um, what causes us so much suffering. So, you know, basically um, it's important to understand that what enabled us to survive as a species as we evolved is that we're hardwired to react to danger as quickly as possible, um, either with aggressive or evasive responses. So that's, you know, fight, flight, or freeze, right? So, you know, we're either gonna like react and fight back or run or freezing is like hiding um, or just, you know, standing still. So um, that really strong response we have makes us notice potential danger. So it's very effective for helping us survive, but it also uh, includes some very unpleasant emotions <laughs> like anger and fear and anxiety and regret um, to impel us to do something. So we become really uncomfortable, right? You know, and want to take action rather than just going, oh, there's a danger. <laughs> like, hmm. so that, that all those powerful feelings really, help us survive um because like if we were happy all the time we wouldn't have survived and our children wouldn't have survived which is all evolution really cares about so we're also hardwired to make plans um because that also helped us survive so you know, gathering food and saving it for the winter, building shelters and making clothes, um, organizing a group to go hunting together to get meat for your family. But what happens is when, you know, we don't, when our plants don't work out, then we can become very upset about that too and frustrated. So like imagine, you know, setting aside a day where you're all gonna go hunting to get some food and then you come back with nothing, you know, you're gonna feel upset. Well, that, that upsetness keeps you doing the task and working to save your family. But again, those are, those are uncomfortable feelings. And, um, you know, we try to control things with our plans, but um, sometimes that's effective, but it often isn't, right? So, you know, we only have to think about during the pandemic, all the plans we often made and had to give up constantly. So, um, so I think basically we want to be happy all the time, but we didn't evolve to be happy all the time or even most of the time. So at a very basic level, um, for example, like 
you know, um, eating makes us feel good. Um, if we just ate once, that's what uh, Robert Wright points out. If we just ate once or, or and also had sex once, you know, or we wouldn't have survived, right? So in addition to everything, you know, we're happy briefly and then we want more um, because that, you know, our nervous system doesn't really know the difference between wanting more food, which we need, and um, wanting more clothes <laughs> because they're fun or something like that. So um, anyway, I'll, uh, I don't know if that's most a coherent presentation. You could ask me questions about it, but to me, those very basic facts about who we are as humans having evolved on this earth explains a lot about why we have such a hard time with change. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's a really, um, that's a great explanation of the sort of the biological and evolutionary process that we as human beings have gone through to come to the place that we are. I have, I have a question, um, which I'm sure you'll have a answer to is given that we've gone through billions of years of change, why is it we still struggle? Because you'd think we'd become more adaptable and you know, if it's something that we inherently need to thrive and survive, why is there something about society and how we are living today that is making change so much harder for people? Because it feels like even within my generation, I'm 51, I remember people being more contented and not struggling so much when I was or maybe I'm daydreaming and that isn't how it was but that's how it feels in my memory what's your thoughts on that well for one thing evolution takes a very very long time right and it really hasn't been that long in human history that people have had enough food and good shelter and the basic things that they need um so evolution hasn't been able to catch up with that mm. um also, I, I don't know that it's true that um, people in the past suffered less than we're suffering now. Um, I, I mentioned my grandparents in the book because my grand, when I thought about what they lived through, it's just incredible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they all grew up in the Pale of Settlement in in Europe, which was just a terrible place to live. So I'm sure they, they suffered there. Um, they moved to the US when they were teenagers. So they had to come to a foreign country where they didn't speak the language, they didn't have jobs. You know, they all started out wearing sweatshops and things like that. Um, and then you can just follow like all the other changes that happened. It was the influenza epidemic, there was, um, World War One, World War Two, the Cold War. I don't even remember the list that goes on. Um, you know, so were they happier? Um, yeah, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps what I'm, perhaps I'm romanticizing the past, which you know certainly could be true. But I guess I think my feeling, my feeling is that there was people felt more content with what they had in the past you know and I, I think certainly in the older days they struggled you know life is simpler for us and I'm wondering if as life has got simpler we've become less content 
perhaps that's more what I'm alluding to perhaps. Yeah, I don't really have an answer to that. I, I pretty much think that human nature is the same throughout history. And, you know, I don't really buy into the argument that sometimes people talk about, you know, primitive humans being less stressed out than we are. I think, oh my God, they were all living in a cave together. They must have really been getting on each other's nerves. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> their and their children would die so often just think about how stressful that was to have you know 10 children and only two survive or only one survive and you know they were worried about getting enough food and I mean you know I, yeah I so that that's how I see things I sort of imagine it like mm -hmm. that rather than this whole idea of oh things are more stressful now for humans um only the only argument that I heard about that that was kind of interesting to me that seemed somewhat believable is that the advent of electricity made things more stressful because the day goes on longer. And it used to be, you know, at a certain point, people just had to stop working and sit in front of the fire, you know, and uh, chill. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we kind of go on with stimulation um, because of electricity and so on yeah. but yeah um i i've thought about this enough i've even argued with people about it because um i was going to say I, I i read something or heard something recently about you know blaming modern stress on the industrial revolution because <laughs> actually that was the point you know um particularly in europe when when light was able to be put on within buildings um, that was caused by that was electrical light so then it allowed people to work longer in factories and then that was the tipping point apparently of when um, stress became more significant for um, people because they disrupted their sleep patterns mm -hmm. so there was something I think uh, I'm just I, I'm racking my brain and I think there's a gentleman called Charlie Morley um, who runs a podcast and has a book out at the moment. And he was talking about the, the shift in our sleeping patterns. So we would normally, up until the Industrial Revolution, we would have had a siesta in the afternoon, like, like you see in Europe and hotter countries, um, mm. you would have worked for a short period, you then would have had a rest, then you would have worked till sundown, and then you wouldn't have worked again until sunrise. But due to the, the invention of electricity and bringing that indoors, then they did away with that time to rest during the day, particularly after lunchtime. And they, 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 they think that was the tipping point of kind of where society became a lot more stressful mm -hmm. <laughs> for people <laughs> which yeah, kind that, of makes that, sense wouldn't it <laughs> yeah that that fits so yeah that that argument seems convincing but um um it it definitely speaks to what you were mentioning earlier about yourself about you know making sure that you rest mm, absolutely. so and that's um, I was just going to ask you about, you know, in terms of 
yoga being a practice that you know has been around for uh, a few thousand years maybe longer we're not quite sure are we exactly when you know when 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 yoga was first um being used but there seems to be something very evident about yoga being supportive when people are going through change whether that's societal change whether that's internal change whether that's through you know relationship change um or as we've kind of touched upon you know the 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 feelings of grief or feeling overwhelmed because of change that's happening and i'd be really interested to hear why you think yoga is so powerful to support times of change Um, yeah, I had, I had a number of answers to that question. Um, I think one of the important things about yoga is that um, yoga philosophy acknowledges impermanence and the suffering that comes along with it. Um, so I, I think that understanding and accepting impermanence is an important first step for cultivating equanimity in the face of change. So we, we were talking about um, some of the evolutionary reasons about why it causes suffering, but I think it's important just to recognize that first and say, okay, the nature of the world is such that there is change. <laughs> Sometimes people don't, you know, they wanna, uh, my, uh, psychiatrist friend Scott Lase, who I quote in the book, talks about fighting with reality. Not everybody wants to admit that, and they they still think they can control everything and make things come out the way they want. I think that's sort of one of the uh, illusions of Western culture: is like you can determine your future, you can um, you know make the reality you want to manifest, <laughs> manifest or whatever, um, which you know is the opposite of admitting that there are things that you can't control and that things are, everything's impermanent and that there's always change. So I think starting by accepting that is really important. Um, that's not something we typically learn in our yoga classes, but I think that's important too. And then um, I think um, yoga provides tools for understanding ourselves which includes uh, self-inquiry practices, and then also the philosophy that um, explains human nature. That's something uh, I really value in the Yoga Sutras is the way, the understanding of human psychology that it provides and um, the impediments to thinking clearly and um, the, the main causes of suffering and so on. And then just the huge range of techniques for cultivating equanimity, and which includes both ancient ones and modern ones. Like you mentioned yoga being thousands of years old. Well, you know, all they were really doing thousands of years ago was meditating and doing pranayama. But both those are very um, powerful practices for uh, quieting the mind and when you're feeling stressed out or encountering anything difficult. Um, and, you know, actually when I compare Buddhism with um, 
yoga, I always really value the extra things that yoga offers besides meditation. And that includes pranayama. And then there's a bunch of other things um, like just the asanas, which can have really strong effects on your emotions and your moods. Um, restorative yoga for that deep rest and conscious relaxation, which includes yoga nidra and uh, the yoga philosophy, which is similar to the Buddhist philosophy and also yoga tools for working with your thoughts, which is like a new category that I only came up with recently because something I've been practicing. Um, it's like the philosophy in action where you, you know, cultivate the opposite thoughts or work on techniques for consciously letting go of thoughts that aren't serving you and so on. So, um, and then for all those things, when we're cultivating equanimity, it doesn't stop us from taking actions that we need to take, but it does help reduce the emotional suffering, suffering associated with facing difficult situations. I mean, some people think that, you know, by cultivating equanimity, it makes you detached from society or, um, um, makes you feel, yeah, there's like that idea of detachment, but it's, it, for us, it's more uh, being able to do the things that we need to do to decide clearly what we need to do and then to be able to do them without so much feeling of stress to be able to dial it down. So, it's, it, yeah, actually what you've described could be termed as, you know, spiritual bypassing, you know, in terms of that thing about really listening to what's happening with inside you and acting appropriately versus doing the thing that you think everyone else thinks you should be doing to move away from the pain or the suffering that you're experiencing. Yeah, I don't think that uh, is what yoga is actually about. And there really is a whole tradition of karma yoga, the yoga, the path of service and mm -hmm. of taking actions. Um, and that's what the Bhagavad Gita is all about, is mm -hmm. the yoga of action and living in the real world and trying to determine what the right thing for you to do is and then, then doing it all at the same time with an approach that uh, creates some equanimity for you as you take those actions. I think um, what you've just stated so eloquently is really helpful to people. You know, you use the, uh, the term equanimity. You know, when we're living in a world that is perhaps in turmoil or is experiencing a lot of change and we're feeling unsteady or overwhelmed or depressed or whatever, you know, our experience is, to have a place that we can return to within a, a structure that allows us to embrace the experience of change and see, as you say, as a, an, a normal and healthy part of the human experience. You know, the Buddhists speak about the world, you know, being a place of samsara, a place of suffering. Um, and that in our suffering increases when we resist change. And really the only way to be at peace is to make peace with the fact that things are going to change and there is going to be some element of distress or discomfort or in, in our life. And 
learning how to navigate that. And I think that's something that feels quite missing to me for a lot of people. They don't know how to look after themselves when they're in a place that is challenge, challenging for them emotionally. Um, and so r- rather than, you know, rest in equanimity and feel their, you know, feel their experience and look after themselves with compassion, they'll do things to distract themselves or to avoid feeling anything. Perhaps you could speak a little bit about some of the practices that you would you speak about as um, tools to help people to manage their challenging feelings. Um, well, the big one for me is that um, I think everyone's different and their circumstances are different. So there isn't a single practice or way that I suggest for everyone. So in the book, I really try to give a whole variety of everything I could think of um, that people can do. So they should try to find what suits them the best. Um, But there's a very large number of them. Um, I think I listed some of them before. from asanas to techniques for working with your thoughts to conscious relaxation and so on. Um, So, you know, I think the trick is to find the right thing for you. I can talk about the right things for me. Um, I'm, I always find that stress management is extremely to help helpful to me because in a way I think stress is sort of the bottom of, of all the difficulty. <laughs> um, the stress response includes all those difficult emotions that are so unpleasant to experience anger, depression, um, fear, anxiety, and so on. So I think just by practicing a lot of stress management um, that can help um, provide you with a baseline that means that you don't go like over the edge with things when you encounter challenges. So I think that's a really good place to start. And I have a whole chapter on that. Um, but then, you know, whatever, because people are different and they respond to change in different ways, I'm providing different solutions, depending on on who you are like. um, So my experience in England, I know, oh, I actually wanted to mention this anyway, because we're talking about previous generations. I found out after that experience that my mother had the same thing and that her mother had the same thing as well. So that's something that runs in my family as a response to stress is this, what they called agitated depression, but I guess they don't call it that anymore. I think it's called um, depression with an element of anxiety or something like that. Um, So, you know, I have a certain kind of temperament that creates that type of response. So I've got a section on depression for both the kind of depression that causes, it has anxiety based, and then also for the kind that's more um, what they call classic, classical depression with which is more lethargic and um and has a uh 
should I try to search for the word? I don't know. But you know, has a very different quality and would require different techniques for for addressing in yoga. So um, and likewise, some people become very angry when dealing with change. Some people um, some people just become extremely anxious, and so um, those are all different kinds of ways that people are responding and there are different techniques um, by do, using different asanas and um, different breathing practices and so on to help address those and at least dial things back, you know, um, and make you more comfortable. I think it's really interesting what you've just touched upon there, Nina, because we see a lot nowadays of people selling solutions based upon a, a, an illness or a condition or something that's going on. So you, you see a lot of yoga for stress, yoga for anxiety. You know, and actually, it is about the individual being able to identify what is happening for them, first of all, for then us to be able to potentially pick the right tools out of the yoga box or out of other boxes you know yoga certainly doesn't have the solution for everything but you know just just knowing that there's such a wide scope of things that you you um you can pick from um and 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 that that very kind of collaborative way that you can work with someone um doesn't seem to be so prevalent in the way that yoga gets taught nowadays. It feels very to me like, you know, do this and this will fix this problem or this will fix that problem. Would you say you 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 notice that as well in, in oh in, definitely in I call that yoga. being prescriptive and you know I, I've had books where you know I did my research too I just uh, and checked out all the other books and maybe someone will say here's a sequence for anxiety. And I'm like, okay, one sequence for everybody, you know? Um, and I, I actually anxiety is a good example because, you know, some people become very hyper with anxiety and mm. they feel like, you know, they can't rest, they can't lie still and so on. So they shouldn't, <laughs> cause it's just gonna make them feel worse. But some people become very exhausted and depleted. Mm. And so maybe, you know, yoga nidra is the perfect solution for them because they just need to rest deeply and mm. that's what's going to make them feel better. So, yeah, I agree. I mean, I do have um, a lot of information about, you know, listening to your own responses to things and not trying to do things just because they've been prescribed as mm. being the solution because if it doesn't, that's what I always say, if it's not working for you, it's not working for you. So yeah, I mean, that is something I consciously worked with, but it's also just something like I observed very early on in my own experience before I became a teacher. Um, and that is like my response to restorative yoga, because I was learning that during a very stressful time in my life um, when I was working for a software startup company, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, 
and I was doing yoga in my office building. And one day a week, the teacher did restorative yoga and I really didn't like it. I mean, I went because it was better to go to yoga that day because Mondays and Wednesdays were active yoga. <laughs> Fridays was restorative yoga and I would go anyway. And so I learned it and I really gave it a good try, but you know, it just doesn't work for me. So, you know, it's not a practice that I normally do myself. I found the supported inverted poses are more helpful to me. They're a little more active and I just feel uh, more comfortable and less agitated doing them. Uh, on the other hand, I know so many people who feel like restorative yoga saved their lives and just did mm. everything for them. So I include that in my book because, you know, just because I don't like it doesn't mean or it doesn't work for me, let's put it that way. I still Later. see it as a valuable practice that other people can benefit from. So I think all that's really important. I, I had a I had a very, very similar experience to you. Um, I was first introduced to restorative yoga um, by the wonderful Judith Lasseter. <laughs> um, however, I went on a training course and this was quite this was I would guess probably about 15 16 years ago and at the time I like you was in a really really stressful job I was practicing ashtanga every day and I was on this five-day training with Judith and it was literally I was like I was like a cat on hot bricks I was just like I can't I cannot relax in this environment I just found it so difficult to actually let go of what I needed to let go of but weirdly something something made me go there but then something stayed with me and I revisited restorative yoga a few years later again and started to understand it and now it's my go-to practice <laughs> isn't that amazing how yeah, that is interesting. Completely, you know, like my and I was my yoga was responding to actually the stresses that I had in my life at that time. So I, you know, I was highly stressed. I was, you know, I was really struggling with addiction things as well. And actually, Ashtanga for me kept my body and my mind in a place that was very focused. <laughs> and I didn't have to explore what was going on particularly because it was just keep going in that vein so you know restorative yoga and being given all that space was just the most painful thing that I could have done <laughs> yeah well I mean sometimes being left alone with your thoughts is not the right thing at the moment and then when you're in a better place it's fine and it works yeah that's what strikes me as yeah sometimes being distracted although ashtanga it seems like when you're stressed out is a little uh just sort of feeds kind of feeds that it's distracting but it also because it hypes you up so much if you're feeling hyped up already Absolutely. then yeah. yeah it kind yeah. of feeds into that um but definitely and then you know sometimes um you know you can do a more active practice for me I always had to do that when I'm feeling very anxious I have to do like a more active practice kind of expel some of my excess mm. energy and stress and then when I'm feeling more physically tired, I can rest more easily. So yeah. it's, it's not always possible for people to like go right into a restorative posture no. after running around. 
no I, and, and interesting that's very similar to you know my my practice right now is because of the marathon training I, I I exert a lot of energy doing that so then my asana is very very um specific yin type postures to really stretch out the connective tissue and the muscle what I've you know impacted so much from doing the running and then a restorative pose or a yoga nidra um, and that actually you know feels like it's taking these elements of different parts and and, and suiting me in different ways um, but also managing you know the the exertion that I'm having to put my body through to be able to get through this marathon training you know it's um fascinating how with the longevity of yoga you can collect these parts from different trainings and different you know experiences that you've had and and be able to to pull them together and I, I when I read your book that actually felt to me is what you had done was you know you took all these ideas and like you said they're not stuff for even things that you might not necessarily practice regularly but you understand enough about them to realize why they would be used in a situation for for a person yeah i mean what you're doing makes perfect sense you've customized your practice for you based on all the things that you know um it takes some self-confidence to do that i think people are a little afraid often to depart from whatever their class was like you already even practice at home because they might do something wrong um mm. You know, actually working with Rodney, he really, all those years ago, really helped me with that idea because he was just like, you know, don't be afraid, you know, like what is going to happen? Just try things. It's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, and I always love practicing at home. So, you know, and those are the benefits of practicing on your own is that you can come up with your own things that work for you. Um, and you know it's going to work versus if you go to class you might not be the right class for you that day yeah so but it does it does um, so I you know I do encourage people to if they're feeling a little uh, concerned about that or unself-confident just just to trust themselves and try things and see how it feels and be willing to if you think there are rules be willing to to break mm. them if it's the right thing for you but what, what I found so powerful about your book was that, you know, you'd really considered all of the different ways that, you know, we are affected by change in, in areas, you know, like grief, like loss, like mental health. And actually then you'd given a whole different selections of ways that you can approach it rather than just saying, this is the way to do it. <laughs> and uh, that's what I found was really great. And I thought, you know, if I was someone that didn't know anything about yoga, I'd find the book very accessible. Well, that's wonderful to hear. I hope so. Like I said, I hope, I mean, I think that some, if you can just get one or two things from a book, that's, that's really all you need. Um, you know, people can, they don't, I also set up the book so people don't have to read the whole thing cover to cover. Mm. Um, so that means there's a little repetition in there because I assumed, you know, I know how people read, they don't, you know, they go to the part that 
It's about the thing that they're interested in, right? Exactly. So if you do jump to that part, it's pretty self-contained or at least tells you where to look else in the book to fill out the information. So yeah, people should feel free to just, you know, look up whatever it is they're going through and read that part or try those things without trying to like digest the whole book. Sure, yeah. Just to let our listeners know, um, Dawn's unfortunately had to drop off of this call. So um, just it's just Nina and myself going forward. So um, Dawn sends her love to everyone. <laughs> um, Nina, would you like to tell us a little bit about the work that you do in collaboration with other professionals? Because when I was looking at your website and the blog around yoga for healthy aging, I, I, I thought it was really interesting, the collaboration that you, you've done with other professionals and just found it really inspiring. Um, what made you start that in the first place? Oh, well, that's actually a funny story. Um, the two people that I started with don't, aren't really working with me anymore, but it was just sort of a... a a random discussion that I had, well, not random, but um, it was uh, Baxter Bell was staying in our house at the time and uh, he got up in the morning and he said, he thought he was getting a little arthritis in his hip or something. And so he is an MD. And then my husband, I was really influenced by him because for 15 years, he worked at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging and he's a medical researcher. So does a little yoga, but isn't really a yoga person. Um, so, and I just, we, we just like standing there looking at each other and we're like, well, God, between the three of us, or among the three of us, wow, we have a lot of expertise in this area of like, you know, how, what aging is and how yoga might help. And so, I don't know, I guess I just decided to give it a go and threw together a free blog and um, those two were my first uh, co-authors on the blog. So we had the science background and the medical background to start. Um, and, you know, I just thought it was, we all just thought it was interesting. And um, over the years, my staff has changed. People come and go. Um, I do have some of, the, some of the early ones still with me. Um, and it's also been an amazing collection of people who have expertise in areas, whether doctors, physical therapists, nurses, as, as well as you know, senior yoga teachers of various kinds, yoga therapists. Um, and everyone writes for free, so that's amazing. And um, it's really a form of service. That's what Ram Rao, he, he started maybe in the first year. Um, I met him at the Buck Institute, actually, I was his yoga teacher, now he's a yoga teacher, and um, he was a neuroscientist, and um, now he's a yoga teacher and a doctor of Ayurveda as well, and um, he grew up in India um, with yoga in his family, and he says that the work that we're doing on the blog is following the path of karma yoga, which is his path, so I hadn't really thought of that for myself, but uh, when I created it, cause I just liked it. Well, I think I do like to share what I know because I really think it can help people. So yeah. anyway, um, that's what really motivates all of us. I think is, is having information that we think will make people's lives better and, 
you know, just wanting to share it in a free and accessible way. Again, I think, you know, it's such a, it's such a refreshing thing to see because, you know, if you was to Google yoga, there is no appearance of people of any kind of middle age upwards, is there? You know, there's a real kind of, you know, it, 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 it feels marketing is very aimed at a, a, a niche of people. And actually, yoga is about our complete life from birth to our death. And, and the amount of people that I actually teach who are from middle age upwards is probably about 90% of my clients. You know, I, I, I thoroughly, and I, I'm in that category myself now, you know, I'm 47. Um, I, you know, I've noticed my body physically changing, you know, when I started to hit my 40s, you know, and I, and I understand through working with people and also, you know, being really fortunate to have both of my parents alive and, and seeing them age how yoga can be so empowering for people, you know. Yes, we need to modify some things, but actually it doesn't mean that you have to stop just because something's happened to you or something's changed. It just means we have to get clever about how we adapt it. And, you know, you talked about Giovanna earlier and just the work that he does. It's, it's, it's fantastic, that accessible yoga school and making yoga accessible to to so many different people, but particularly, you know, we're in an aging population, aren't we? And, you know, it feels like that needs to be embraced more and more. So I, I, I'm, I'm really grateful for you putting that information out there. Um, was there anything you wanted to say about aging and yoga? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I have been, I have been, I have been influenced by Jivana's work and I actually took the accessible yoga training as well, sort of round, to round out my, I never stopped learning, which is wonderful. So um, to kind of round out my knowledge, um, but you know, I actually do have a, a strong opinion that <laughs> about this that people don't necessarily want to hear, which is um, I think that chair yoga, older people get steered towards chair, chair yoga and I feel like that's a problem because I think um, that no one should really just do a full only chair yoga practice if they can still stand, even, even if they need some help uh, and support because uh, balance is so important and being able to continue to walk and move is so important. So. Mm -hmm. If all your exercise is in a chair, you're not you're not getting the benefits from um, the balancing poses of yoga and um, the poses that help you sit up and down from the chair or the toilet or whatever and all, all those things. So um, I feel like, you know, in a way that's so we don't really have much hair yoga, if any, on our our blog. And it's not to say that some people might not get to a point where that's all they can do, but I would really encourage people to um, continue to practice standing poses um, and also getting up and down from the floor, you know, um, rather than just sitting on a chair because, you know, 
what if you fall down you have to get up <laughs> you know you want to be you want to keep those skills is what i'm saying and yeah. um so even if you have to balance you know with your back near a wall and do tree pose that way or or with two hands i don't like the tree pose where you put one hand on a wall because that's sort of unstable but you can you know reach your hands behind your back and put your fingertips on the wall or whatever um so that is one thing i say that's my my personal rant about um about yoga for healthy aging about um and older people trying to keep them on their feet as long as possible and to teach them those things at least for part of the class yeah, yeah. and you know we we live in a society don't we where you know we get told don't because this is happening, don't do this or avoid this or, or, or stop, you know, stop these things. And actually, that really limits someone's confidence and someone's ability, because actually, we should continue to do as much as we possibly can do in all the different ways that our bodies can move and breathe and, 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 and be facilitated because our bodies are designed to move in that way. And, you know, there's so much fear base, isn't there, around, you know, I, I recently um, went through a process of um, exploring some wear and tear in, in, in a hip joint. Um, and it was really interesting speaking to different people and hearing their response to what they was advising me to do. Not that I asked for advice for any, from anybody, you know, but it's just, oh, are you going to stop running? Oh, you know, has yoga caused this? <laughs> you know, and it, and, it, and it being things that actually I, I think, you know, there, there wasn't any consideration around actually what you're saying is quite harmful to me because they're things that I really love. And I don't want to let go of them. And actually, ironically, the advice that I was given was to not stop moving in any way, shape or form and to carry on doing what I've been doing, <laughs> just to make sure that I'm looking after myself in a slightly different way to the way that I was. Um, but there's so much fear base, isn't there, around, you know, around the instruction or the advice that we're, we're, we're offered, um, which can be really harmful i feel yeah no i agree it makes people um uh yeah if you're afraid if you become afraid and you start cutting back then that just makes things worse and worse and worse versus if you find a way to do it um uh then that's just going to keep you healthier longer so yeah, yeah I, I i definitely agree with that i had um someone close to me when she was like 60 maybe just say oh it's hard for me to get up and down from the floor so I'm only going to do chair yoga and I was just like well not only are you missing out on all these really great poses that help balance and um, also recline poses that are more relaxing and you know big mix of things that you're missing but you know again you're going to lose the ability to get up and down from the floor which is valuable and you know you're going to lose your ability to balance as well which is really important just for walking around out in the world so yeah the more you yeah the more you cut back the worse the worse you become so 
so you know it's a little I mean I'm 70 actually so and I do have some physical issues and I've had to change my practice a lot um but I'm still doing standing poses um but I have to do them differently than I used to and um I use more props than I used to but you know there's there are way there are ways that you can keep practicing um for a very long time even if you need to like have one foot at the wall for your balance or you know you can put a a chair in front of you and do your standing pose with your hands on it yeah on the chair seat and to, to take your feet wide apart if that's not a movie you're comfortable doing mm-hmm. anymore Mm. and so on so um yeah lots lots of options yeah the beauty of adaptation (laughs) i call it the full spectrum of yoga poses um because we tend to see like either like the class what i call the classic version with no props and then maybe i don't know maybe one you know, small prop and then chariot, like, like that's all it is, but there's like this huge spectrum in between. Absolutely. Yeah. Of different adaptations that you can use and different variations. And um, I was just actually writing a blog post today, this morning, um, because someone on Facebook who's in their seventies said that they can no longer do um, inverted poses because of of potential of developing glaucoma so they have that and that's a serious problem Mm. um you don't want to go blind so yeah you have to give those up but i was like i love thinking about things like this so i was like okay you can't do that anymore what can you do and how Mm. what you know she's like can't do stand forward bend i'm like well you could do a bending forward to the parallel position you know um and so I just went through, I just was writing for every single pose I could think of where your head is tipped back. So you're, it's either hanging forward down or tipped back in a back bend or something like ways to do those alternative poses or ways to modify. So you can, you know, you know, I, w- I was able to come up with something for every single one I thought of, whether it was a similar pose, like, you know, um, you can't do bridge pose anymore, but bow pose is the same pose, only upside down. Absolutely, <laughs> so yeah. Do that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I showed how to do it with a prop or, you know, uh, prasarita, padottanasana, widespread standing forward mm-hmm. bend with your legs apart and hands on blocks, mm-hmm. keeping your spine straight and your head up and so on. Yeah. So it's, I, I love thinking about those things. And there is a, there is like a huge, uh, huge huge range of alternatives and you can make them up too yeah absolutely that's the beauty of it isn't it there is no right and no wrong yeah (laughs) you mentioned a minute ago um about a facebook page is there a page that people can follow to engage with you um yeah, definitely. There's a Yoga for Healthy Aging Facebook page. That's what it's called. To be oh, pretty easy to find. I think there's about 30,000 followers there now. <laughs> we'll, so, we'll put it in the show notes as well for people yeah. to be able to, to, to share. Yeah. Um, a question I ask everybody, Nina, which I think is really interesting to hear all, all the different responses that we've had. But how do you take care of yourself? <laughs> I do make an effort to take care of myself because of problems I had in the past and I don't want them to recur. And the good news is 
it's been decades since I had the kind of problems I had in England. So it works. <laughs> um, so I'm always conscious of that, especially if I'm going through a stressful time, like at the mm -hmm. beginning of the pandemic, I made a vow. So um, right now I meditate every single day. I had wanted to do that for a long time. It took me a while to get started, but then I finally did. And um, I think that's the most important practice I do now because that's my plan for the future. I feel like no matter what is going on with you, if you, you know, have a, have a mind, you can still meditate. And I Maybe. think it's a skill that I wanted to have in place really well established um, to call on in difficult times. Cause you know, if you have a habit, it's much easier to just kick in to do it. So I've been doing that for 30 minutes a day, seven days a week. I'm working my, my way gradually up to an hour. Um, and then um, I do stress management on a regular basis. And for me, that's uh, supported inverted poses and specifically legs up the wall pose. So mm -hmm. um, I do that if I'm feeling stressed at all and, you know, just kind of regularly as well. For the pandemic started, I did it also every single day for 20 minutes because I would just, <laughs> I would just wanted to ensure, you know, that I would feel as stable as possible. And lately I'm not doing it as frequently, but that's like a 20 minute practice too. So those things to add up. Um, and you know, I do asana practice as well, but not every single day anymore because I found that um, getting out of the house and taking a walk is more important for me. The other thing that I I do um, is I use yogic tools for working with my thoughts. Um, and that includes, um, you know, being aware of thoughts that aren't serving me when I have them and then letting go of them consciously, either by cultivating an opposite thought, and I can explain that, or just, I just have little phrases that I use or just say let go of that thought. Um, sometimes my catchphrase has been don't panic too soon. That's in the book of, you know, when I catch myself worrying about the future. Um, so, Sharon Salzberg said something really good. I don't remember the exact words about thoughts. You can't prevent them from occurring. And that fits with the book, Why Buddhism is True, because he talks about how thoughts just get triggered by your brain and your body and your stress responses mm -hmm. cause thoughts. So, but you can notice them. That That's what, um, you know, all of our mindfulness skills help us do. And when you notice them, you can, instead of like going on and on with them and obsessing about them and getting stuck there and um, which can even cause and increase your anxiety, right? If you're having an anxious thought and then you go deep into those anxious fantasies, your nervous system doesn't know the difference between the things happening for real and your imagining. So if you can notice them and then just, try to let them go. Um, so that that's another practice that I have just in my daily life when I'm 
doing the normal things that we all do or taking a walk or whatever is to try to, when I notice those type of thoughts cropping up to try to let them go. Sounds like an amazing set of tools that you have that feel really adaptive <laughs> to your needs and adaptive to the changes that, you know, we all know are inevitable in our lives which you know is the beauty of the book that you've written and what you've explained to dawn and i today so thank you nina for being here today i'm really appreciative of of the work that you've done i really enjoyed reading the book and i'm gonna dig out your other books as well and have a read of them as well um so thank you so much for being our guest today Oh, thank you for having me. It was lovely talking to you. I feel like I made a, some new friends. Where do you where do you live? So we live in a place. Um, <laughs> so we're about. So you know where Cambridge is. <laughs> yeah, I know where Cambridge is, and I know where Liverpool is, and I know where London is. <laughs> so, so we're right at the very far end of the Thames, um, where it joins the sea. So we're not actually that far from Cambridge. We're about an hour from Cambridge in a place called Leon Sea. Oh, oh, so on the east coast of... Yeah, so we're, we're, we're the east side of London going yeah. out along the Thames to, to Europe, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, we're, 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 we live at a place called the Thames Estuary. So, you know, it's where it, it's becoming the, joining the sea. Um, which is a lovely place to live when it's warm and sunny. Mm -hmm. Not so nice when it's cold and wet and miserable. <laughs> oh, well, I'm just, we're jealous of the rain sometimes because we have a, a... Yeah, it can be very dry there, can't it? Very dry. We were in, in a serious drought out here, so... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for being our guest today. It's been a, a real pleasure. Um, also, thank you to everyone that's listened today. If you do have any questions that you'd like us to answer, please do let us know. If you have any feedback about what we talked about or even anyone that you would like us to interview, then please do just drop us a message and let us know. Until next time, thank you, Nina, for being our guest. And thank you, Dawn, for being my co-host. And um, I hope she has a lovely meal with her daughter this mm -hmm. evening, which is where she's disappeared to. And um, thank you for listening. Until next time. Thanks, Nina. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Bye.